Good morning, everyone. Such a joy to be with God's people, isn't it? To sing his praises and to rejoice in what we have in Christ and who he is. And just the privilege we have of not only having a really great time of blessing now, but knowing that we have a great future as we look forward to one to all of us being together in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. And may he find us faithful and just persevering and enduring and being strengthened by him day by day as we serve and as we walk the dust of this earth and await that day when he calls us home. I want to give you a couple of updates here of what's going on. Um, as you know, last weekend we had the Walk for Life, and you may remember that on that Saturday morning it was cold and blustery and windy, and turnout as far as number of walkers was, I'm going to guess, around 20 to 25 percent of a normal year. And I understand why. It was cold. It was hard to be out there. Um, but I think the overall giving was up, which is the most important thing. And Carol and I, we had a brief moment. It was cold. It was windy. It was rainy. We had a brief moment where we thought, you know, we could just walk at another time. And then we thought, we're just walking in the rain. And the reason why we're walking in the rain is because some women are going to be facing difficult pregnancies, and we want to minister to them. And what's walking in the rain compared to that? So we just went ahead and walked, walked all the way to the end, and we touched the chain, and we came back. And it reminded me a little bit of our family trips, because Carol and I were keeping a really good pace, because we wanted to finish. And we're passing all these people as we go, and we go all the way to the end, but we noticed that not everybody walked all the way to the end, and so as we're coming back, we're passing them all again. And I thought... It's like these family trips. You know why dads never want to stop at a rest stop? <laughs> because then they have to start passing again. All those people they just spent the previous hour passing. But it was a great moment, and the overall statistics, we're still working on the final results. Um, according to Heidi Mitchell, the director, they've raised at least $78,000 from the Walk for Life. And once again, EFC Orville, so proud of you guys. Came in as the number one church at just under $25,000. And the funds are still coming in, so the final details will show up in their next newsletter. And I'm so thankful that uh, you, you pledged more for me this year than you did last year. And that's really a good news. The bad news is I slipped into third place. <laughs> but that means that everybody wins. And so I'm so grateful that we were able to do that, and we'll continue to pray for this great ministry because it's important in our community. It's important for us to continue to have a, a pro-life approach from the moment of conception to the time of natural death. If you haven't already, I encourage you to fill out the attendance forms that are in your rows so that we can know who's with us this morning. And please make sure your cell phones are turned off as we prepare to have a time in the Word this morning. Well, in his book, Christ call to discipleship. Pastor James Boyce tells the story of an event that happened actually in the life of his predecessor, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Pastor Barnhouse had led the son of a prominent American family to the Lord, and this new convert had been in military service, but he showed the reality of his conversion when he immediately began confessing Christ before his fellow soldiers in his company. But after World War I ended, he returned to his pre-war life in the wealthy suburb 
of a large American city. And so he visited Pastor Barnhouse about his life with his family, and he expressed fear that he would be tempted to slip back into his old habits. He was afraid that his love for his family and friends might turn him from following after Jesus Christ. He had heard the call to come and follow me. Pastor Barnhouse told him that if he was careful to make public his confession and faith of Christ, that he would not have to worry. He would not have to give up improper friends. They would give him up. So as a result of this conversation, this young soldier, this new believer in Jesus Christ, resolved that he would tell the first ten people of his old set of friends that he had become a Christian. And so it happened that he went home, and almost immediately, in fact, while he was still on the train platform at the train station at the end of his return trip, he met a girl that he had known socially before, and she was delighted to see him and asked how he was doing. And he said, oh, the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me has happened. Oh, you become engaged to be married, she exclaimed. Oh, no, it's even better than that. I've taken the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The girl's expression froze. She mumbled a few polite words and then went on her way. And a short time later, the new Christian met a young man whom he had known before going into service. They had palled around together, and he said, It's good to see you back. Oh, we'll have some great parties now that you've returned. Well, I've just become a Christian, said the soldier, thinking, that's two. Again, it was a case of a frozen smile, and a, and a voice from the Lord said, <laughs> a quick smile and said, well, I'll be on my way. Again, the circumstances repeated themselves a couple of times with more old friends, and then word got around, and some of his friends stopped seeing him. They now found him peculiar, religious, and maybe even a little crazy. What had he done? He had done nothing but obey his Lord and just confess him as Lord and Savior. And that same confession that had brought him in alignment with the Savior and the one who had saved him now separated him from those who didn't want Jesus Christ as their Savior and who in fact did not want even to hear about him. So it brings us to the question then, what would cause a young man full of life, at the beginning of life, ready to build a career, to take such risks about telling others that he now belonged to Jesus Christ? And the simple answer is because he had heard about Jesus, and he had met him, and he had heard the teachings of Jesus, who had said he was to be the greatest treasure, the one more desired than anything else in his life. And that story and that emphasis certainly fits with what we've seen in our time in Matthew 13, where we have studied several of the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we finally get to the end of chapter 13, and we'll find that while Jesus had warned his followers that they risked persecution, they risked suffering, they risked rejection at the hands of the enemies of the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus himself would show that he was no stranger to such rejection such threats. Indeed, one of his titles is that he was a man of sorrows who knew what it was to be misunderstood, to be rejected by those closest to him, be it members of his earthly family or members of his hometown. Well, of all that is our introduction as we prepare to finish chapter 13 in our study through the gospel according to Matthew. I invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we consider our passage this morning. 
Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. And if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open them this morning and follow along. Or if you don't have it open in front of you, you can follow along on the screen behind me. But the living and mighty Word of God says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let us pray. Father, it's at the reading of your word now that we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe and wills to receive and minds to understand and desires to please you. So we turn to you, Father, and ask that by your Holy Spirit you would guide and teach us in these moments so that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ in a deeper way as we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Please be seated. Special good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you that through technology we can be together. And I hope that if it's possible soon and very soon you can be joining us here. But if not, we're glad that you're where you are. And I encourage you to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew 13 and study with us as we go through this passage together. Now Matthew 13, as we've been saying, Jesus has been teaching in parables. He's creatively using different subjects and different illustrations to show the true nature of the kingdom of heaven, revealing the secrets of that kingdom to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And we've seen that his disciples are growing in their understanding of that kingdom, while his enemies are growing in their hostility to the same. They're still lost in spiritual blindness. Now, when we were together two weeks ago and we last looked at Matthew 13, we saw that Jesus talked about being the true treasure, the fulfillment of both the New and the Old Testament, that he is the one that allows the, the true understanding of God's word to come from that which is new and that which is old. He is the one to whom the scriptures point. But even as he was saying that he is the focal point of the scriptures and the true treasure that we must all seek, not everyone was impressed by him. And we'll see this morning a very poignant example of that as we enter into our sermon outline this morning. You can follow along in your sermon outlines that are in the bulletin. You can follow along in the church app if you have it. But our first major point, astonished and not amazed. Astonished and not amazed. And verse 53 says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. This is one of those statements that Matthew uses over and over again as a transitional statement to show that he is finishing up one section and moving on to the next. And this next section now that begins here in, in verse 53 of chapter 13 will carry us all the way to the end of chapter 18. And then when we get to the beginning of 19, we'll have a similar statement. And when Jesus had finished saying these things. And there's several of these indicators that the narrative is moving on. And this is one of them. 
And as we enter this new section then over the next several chapters, which will take us a little bit of time, we will notice that there will be various responses to Jesus. Some of them will be positive, but most of them will be negative. And the emphasis is going to turn more and more toward the events that will happen in Jerusalem as the life of Jesus moves towards its climactic conclusion at the cross and resurrection. But here we find him going to Nazareth, Nazareth where he receives an unwelcome return. An unwelcome return. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. So as we begin today, it's important for us to remind ourselves that what we believe about Jesus Christ determines how we will worship him, determines how we will respond to him. And so the challenge goes out as Jesus does again and again and again. He challenges the perceptions that people have of what God should be like or what they would like God to be like and say that we are to worship the God who is as he has revealed himself, not as we want him to be. And that's a challenge in for us to continue in our hearts, in our minds, in our understandings, to return to the scriptures again and again. Who does Jesus say he is, not whom we want him to say he is? To avoid the idol-making in our own hearts, to avoid having a wrong understanding. Well, Jesus has been spending a good bit of time in Galilee, but now here we find him returning to his hometown of Nazareth. Approximately at this point, he's close to two years into his earthly ministry, his messianic ministry. And so at least for a time, he leaves the area around the Sea of Galilee to head into the hills of Nazareth. And we've already seen that there has been some opposition to Jesus from his family. They're back in Nazareth, but apparently they're hearing about what's happening in Galilee. And so as we saw in chapter 12, they come to him because they want to bring him away. Because he's embarrassing them. They're offended by what he's saying with his words, by what he's doing with his actions. So he's already experienced opposition from his own family. And that opposition prepares us for what we will see in our passage this morning. He arrives in his hometown, and as you can see, in your copy of God's Word or on the screen, he taught in their synagogue. This would have been the synagogue he would have grown up in. This would have been the synagogue of his youth. He would have been known in that place, known by the people. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of support for him there. And certainly this context doesn't have a feel of some type of welcome home party, of a son that's gone away and has come back. And from this time forward, then, there's going to be a change because this actually is the last time that the word synagogue appears in the gospel according to Matthew. I find it interesting, then, that from this time forward, the ministry of Jesus will take place outside of the official places and structures of first century Judaism. The separation is starting to appear more and more. Yet many still come to him. Perhaps they've already heard about what he's done in Galilee. And to their surprise, we are told that they find him speaking with wisdom and great insight, but it doesn't move them to worship him. Instead, it moves them to call into question what he is doing. In essence, they're asking the question, who is this man? So 
I'm going to skip for a moment over that next phrase in our text, and I'm going to jump down in verse uh, 55, where it says, And is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? So there's a discussion that's taking place about the pedigree of Jesus. He's, he's referred to here as the son of the carpenter. But what's interesting is Joseph doesn't appear a lot in the story of Jesus. Of course, at the beginning he does, the plight to Egypt he does, the return to Nazareth he does. But after that, there's really no mention of him. It's possible that by this time then Joseph is deceived. But in any case, people know whose son he is. He is the son of the carpenter. And we, when we hear the word carpenter, we immediately think of band saws and hand saws and wood and things like that. And that's correct to a point. But actually, a carpenter in those days would work more often with stone and with masonry. So he'd be a stone cutter. He'd be a type of bricklayer in addition to working with wood. It was a great skill. It was a skill that was in demand. But it would not be seen as someone who was among the educated class of the community. Is this not the son of the carpenter? And then they give the names of the, the sons, the brothers. And all of them show that the family was steeped in Jewish history and custom. Each of the names of these sons are important in the history of Israel. They're named after the patriarchs, in fact. And so Mary and Joseph were simple people, a carpenter in, in a village of Nazareth. And so the people are wondering, but Jesus would not have had such a great upbringing, a very humble upbringing. And so his fellow townspeople are surprised a bit and maybe even a bit upset with him. Who was he to think that he could surpass them or act as one with authority? There's a, there's a sense of mockery and sarcasm in the air. There's tension going on. Is this not the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is? And rather than listening to him, they're wondering why he would not act like one of them instead of acting like one who had authority over them. And so Jesus, we know that slowly he's gaining some followers, but not many. Admittedly, his first couple of years, there's not a lot of followers. And it's clear that even into his earthly ministry, well into his earthly ministry, his own family did not believe in him, including James. We're told in John chapter 5 that for not even his brothers believed in him. He's getting closer to going to the cross. His own family doesn't believe in him. We have a story in Mark chapter 3 where we're told that the family tried to stop him and it's said that they went to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. His own earthly family doesn't understand who he is. He's making these crazy claims. He's giving these crazy sayings. They don't believe in him. So many times they try to stop him. They're embarrassed. They must understand. Who is he trying to pretend to be? So this morning, as we continue on, I'm going to share some things that I'd already shared during our Easter message, just a reminder, because the first brother that is mentioned is James. James was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ at the crucifixion. His name does not appear in any of the accounts of the trials and the sufferings and the death of Jesus. Perhaps it was too much for him to see his half-brother be beaten and bloodied and hung on a cross. So he's not there. And yet, 
something important happened because in the New Testament later on and in the history of the church, James became one of the early and strong leaders in the church. We're even told that he and his brothers and sisters and his mother Mary were in the upper room with the believers just days after the crucifixion. We're told that James even became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And in fact, at Acts 15, the first church council is taking place. They meet together. Well, how can those who come from a Jewish background and those that come from a Gentile background, how can they have table fellowship? How can they worship the Lord together? They have such different expectations and different backgrounds. And it was James who was the leader of this council who led the, the letter to be written on how Jews and Gentiles could have table fellowship with one another. James gives a strong defense of the gospel. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He gives instructions to how believers are to live. And history tells us that this James had this wonderful reputation of being a godly man. In fact, he was known as a man of prayer with the, the nickname of Camel Knees. If you've ever seen the knees of camels, which I have in the Middle East, they're not much to behold. But he was known as a man who spent so much time praying to the Lord. What had happened to James? Where he was an unbeliever, and now he's a believer, and a great believer, and a leader among believers. And I think we get the answer in one short sentence in 1 Corinthians 15. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. And Acts I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have this list of those to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection. And it's that little phrase, then he appeared to James, made all the difference, where this one who had grown up as a half-brother of Jesus and denied him and was embarrassed by him now becomes this great disciple and follower and leader of the church. And in fact, James never got over it. Because how do you get over it after you've encountered the Lord of life? After your life has been turned right side up from confusion and moral darkness when you've met the Lord of life. And James lived out the rest of his life in service to his brother who had now become his Lord. And in fact, he wrote one of the earliest books written in the New Testament where he described himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who had once been ashamed of his brother was now willing to live for him, to be, as it were, a servant, a, a slave of him, and even to die a martyr's death, which he did in A.D. 62. He was struggling with the religious leaders, and they took advantage of a power vacuum that was going on, and they took James, and they brought him to the temple, and they put him up on the top, and they said, deny Jesus. And according to testimony from the early church, James said, why are you asking me about the Son of Man? He is seated in heaven at the right hand of great power and will come again on the clouds of heaven. He repeats the words that Jesus said at his own trial, the very words that Jesus spoke that caused him to be charged with blasphemy and had him put to death. And James now, 30 some odd years later, repeats those words, affirming who Jesus was. He was God in the flesh. And in reaction to his testimony of faith, the Jewish leaders threw him to the ground where amazingly he survived. They began to stone him, but that wasn't enough. And finally, with a fatal blow from a wooden club to his head, he died a martyr's death. 
became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because he had seen the risen Lord. But we're not there yet. Here in chapter 13, he, along with the townspeople, are wondering, who does this guy think he is? You notice another brother that is mentioned in that list in verse 55 is Judas. Judas is actually another name of Jude or Judah. You know, names can take on different forms over time. But we know this to be Jude or Judas, who is the author of the New Testament book that bears his name. And what did Jude say about his own regard? Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Something had happened where these half-brothers became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the events of Matthew 13, they still don't believe. Now, we don't know much about the other siblings that are mentioned there, and I find it interesting that nothing is said about the sisters, not even their names. Perhaps it's because they had married local men, they remained in the area, we don't know. But all we know is that they were known by the townspeople. And when Jesus comes back, the people are looking at his family and saying, is this not the son of the carpenter? We know who his mother is. We know who his brothers and sisters are. There's nothing special about them. So who is this one? Speaking and acting in such a way. They recognize that he had wisdom. But from where? And so now we're going to jump back up the end of verse 54. Where then did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And then jump down to the end of verse 56. Where then did this man get all these things? They're asking the question. We know his background. We know his family. Where did all this come from? And we're told in verse 54, they're astonished at him. And that's not a positive description. The context makes clear that their concern was not with the nature of the teaching or the nature of his action, but the source. They had heard about his works and his words in Galilee, but where did he get this? Where did he get these things? Notice the, the descriptive phrase that is used. Where did this man? As if there's a form of contempt. They knew he hadn't had the formal rabbinical training. He hadn't been to the right schools. He hadn't had the right teachers. He didn't know the right scholars. Yet here he seems to have this wisdom and power. Oh, if only they had eyes to see. They would have praised God for what they were hearing and for what they were seeing. But instead, they're criticizing him for his lack of what they considered the required standards and credentials. They were thinking simply on the human plane. They had known him as a kid. Where did he get these mighty works? They don't deny the reality, but they are questioning the source. They're not saying it came from God, so where did it come from? And so there's this tension that's in the air. And as the story unfolds, Jesus reminds them that people who become great, who achieve great things, oftentimes are not recognized by those that know them best. Jesus is teaching here with wisdom, but where did he get this wisdom? Well, Jesus knows where he got that wisdom. He knows what wisdom is. True wisdom is living appropriately and uprightly before God and before men. And Jesus knows that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. 
And Jesus had the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Father. He depended completely upon the Father. And he knew that he was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah in 61, which said that the Spirit of God would come upon the, the Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom. And Jesus, as he is being, being ready to be baptized, and then as he is preaching in the synagogue, says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He knows where he has gotten that wisdom. It's coming from God. And here's the hope that we have today. Christ had the wisdom of God poured on his life, empowered by the Spirit of God. And if we're in Christ today, and we fear the Lord, we can know the wisdom of God and have the wisdom of God upon us as well. Is that your hope this morning? Is that the mark of your life? That as you make decisions, as you plan the day, as you go about planning uh, how to use your money or make your calendar, is wisdom guiding your life where you're living uprightly and appropriately before God and before men? If you're in Christ, my friends, that wisdom is available and claim it by faith and say, God, fill me with that wisdom, teach me your wisdom, and spend time in the Word of God so that you can walk as a wise person. But the people of Nazareth didn't have the fear of the Lord. They didn't understand the fear of the Lord. They didn't understand wisdom. They didn't recognize godly wisdom. So they're astonished, but not amazed. My friends, Jesus does amazing things. He answers prayer. He upholds the whole world by the word of his power. He holds you in his hand. He gives you the next breath that you have. He is the Lord before whom we will all stand in judgment one day. He wants to give us wisdom. But are we astonished, but not amazed? Or are we astonished, and we bow down in reverence and say, what an awesome Savior we have. The people of Nazareth were astonished and not amazed. Secondly, they were offended and not impressed. Offended and not impressed. You've heard the expression that familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes it's the case that one who becomes well-known, who achieves great things, is not always appreciated by those who know him. But how tragic to think that there were those who knew Jesus, watched him grow up, understood who he was, and didn't really know who he was, and are astonished and offended, and they reject him. Can you imagine one day standing before the Lord in judgment standing before the very one whom you were offended at and astonished at all oh, my friends if today you hear his voice harden not your hearts repent and turn to the Lord and say oh God have mercy so not only will you be astonished but you'll be, you'll be in awe and you have a heart full of worship and you want to respond with obedience and turn to him. But the people of Nazareth and their blindness and their rebellion, they could not rise above. The normal mundane way of looking at things to see the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was bringing in. And it gets worse when we realize the language that they used where they were scandalized. Scandalized. And we're told in verse 57, they took offense at him. The Greek word, you don't have to know a lot of Greek, just listen to the word, skandalizo, means to scandalize or to cause to stumble. 
They're caused to stumble by Jesus, by what he was saying, by what he was doing. Who does he think he is? The weight of their words means that they were determined not to believe in him. Have we not seen that before? They're falling into the same sin as the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum that we saw in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Jesus says, if the pagans of old had seen these miracles, had seen these wonders, they would have repented. But you cities are not repenting. And your judgment would be more severe. But there they at least saw the works and they rejected them. Here it's worse. They don't even want to see the works of Jesus. They reject him. They stumble over him. They're not walking in the truth. They're ignoring the warnings that Jesus gave to John the Baptist. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But these people in Nazareth are offended by Jesus. I hope you're not offended by Jesus. As he portrays himself, as he really is, as the sovereign God who is Lord over all, who does only what the Father wills, but all that the Father wills, who reveals the Father to others, who is king of the kingdom of heaven, the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron one day, the one who commands all to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah knows why he came. He he knows that he will come to face rejection and anger and hatred at the hands of sinful men. And he did, and he did it for us. He did it on our behalf. He knows what it is to be lonely, what it is to be rejected, what it is to be misunderstood. He's been rejected even by his hometown. And so he can say, it can be lonely at home. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now this is a proverbial saying to be sure. But it's a reminder that people often do not recognize the greatness that can come from within their midst. There's some jealousy here among the people of Nazareth. But Jesus, in a subtle way, affirms that he is a prophet. Of course, he's more than a prophet. But he knows that he, he ranks in with the prophets of the Old Testament. And Matthew wants his, his readers to understand because as he's writing to Jewish leaders, Jewish people, he uses the word prophet more than any other book in the New Testament. He wants them to see the significance of Jesus as the prophet who is the fulfillment of all the prophets because, in fact, he was more than a prophet. And so let's think then of the original context. What is happening here? What has been happening in the years before uh, Jesus arose as the Messiah? There had been silence from the Lord for 400 years. No prophet, no prophetic word. No, thus says the Lord, for 400 years since the days of the prophet Malachi. No promise that they would no longer be languishing in servitude and oppression to their overlords, whether they were Greek or whether they were Roman. No words at all from the Lord until John the Baptist appears in the Judean wilderness and says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then there's Jesus. Jesus knows that he is a prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. He knows that he is the one to whom all of the prophets point. In fact, as the early church was preaching the gospel, you can write down Acts chapter 10, verse 43. It says, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
And yet here we find in his hometown, among his own people and his own family, he's been rejected. The problem is, is that was the pattern of the people of Israel. A pattern of rejecting the prophets of God. And here they are rejecting the one to whom the prophets point. And so later on, we'll get to it, in Matthew 23, verses 33 and 34, Jesus warns the generation with, listen to this prediction, how he warns his generation who is rejecting him. Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. We might say it this way. You killed all the prophets from A to Z. You killed all the prophets from Genesis to Malachi or from Genesis to Revelation. You killed all those prophets and now you are going after the one to whom the prophets point. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. The people of Nazareth just can't overcome the humble origins of Jesus. I'm glad that we have a God who condescends to our level so that we can understand him, so we can hear from him, we can learn from him, we can grow in him, we can be used by him. That it's, we're not limited by our past or our supposed lack of credentials because our credentials are in Christ. Our qualifications are in Christ. And this is very personal for me because I, I come from a large extended family of religious but unconverted people. My mother was the youngest of 14. My father was one of five. Cousins and uncles and aunts and nieces and nephews all over the place. Very religious, but not converted. I can't know for sure. But one thing I do know is I was one of the first in that whole large clan to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I know that my conversion made waves with my family. Especially when I left the church of my youth and joined the Evangelical Free Church of America and then joined a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ where I served as a student and then a full-time staff for 29 years as a cross-cultural missionary. I went to a state university. I didn't go to one of those fancy places, you know, with all of the foundations and scholarships. I had to work hard to work my way through school. There was nothing in my pedigree that would have made it obvious that I should go into a lifetime of full-time gospel ministry. The only answer is, but God. God is the one who takes that which is weak and can make it strong. Because I know myself, more often than I'm really care to admit I'm that man of little faith I struggle sometimes with doubt I struggle with is God really going to and then I realize when I'm weak he is strong I don't serve a weak savior I serve a strong savior mighty to save who finishes what he starts who holds his own till the end I've staked my eternal destiny on it and the people of Nazareth did not recognize what was in their midst 
but God. God was at work. His plan was going to go forward. He had his chosen servant, his son, who was going to be the one who would be the Messiah. This morning you may think, I'm not all that much. I don't have the right certificates hanging on my wall. I don't belong to the right family. I haven't achieved much in life. No, but God. If you're in Christ this morning, he looks upon you with such love and affection. He pulls you close and he says, I have redeemed you. I have set you apart for my service. I want to use you and I'm going to hang on to you until I call you safely to the shores of heaven. No matter our background, we're called to be ambassadors. We get to serve the king. We get to represent the king. We get to speak the words of the king. But the people of Nazareth did not recognize the nature and power of Christ. They were astonished. They were offended. They'll pay the price. Because ultimately, unbelief will not be rewarded. And so our text ends in verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We know that the calling to ministry, the calling to faith, the, the, the salvation is all of the Lord. It's a divine thing. It's a supernatural thing. And if the people of Nazareth didn't understand that about Jesus, perhaps they thought they could call into question his ability to teach. How could he be the Messiah? I mean, we know his parents. So Jesus didn't do many mighty works there. It doesn't say he didn't do any. It says he didn't do many we need to understand what's going on here. It is not because of his inability. It's not even because of a response of faith or not on their part. Jesus often performed miracles for people who would not believe. He fed 5,000 men and more with women and children with loaves and fishes. And the follow-up makes, sure, makes clear that not all of them believed. The problem is not Jesus' ability. No, he's almighty. He can do all things. The problem was deeper than that. They didn't come to him. They would not come to him. They didn't ask him. They would not ask him to do his miracles and his works. They didn't believe in him or in his ability to do things. They didn't come. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is loving. Jesus is kind. But Jesus is also holy, and he is sovereign, and he's in control. And sinful man will not dictate to him what he can or cannot do, what he can and cannot say. And in order to see God at work, we have to believe. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a, a group of people that know about the gospel and they're tempted to move away from the gospel back to the traditional practices of Judaism. And he's warning them, don't do that, because that's not the way to life. And as he's preparing to give a testimony of all the people through whom God has been working in Hebrews chapter 11, he says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. People of Nazareth would not do that. And where unbelief reigns, there is no right to demand a miracle or that God do something because Jesus came to please the Father. He didn't come to please the skeptic. He didn't come to create a crowd. He wanted to do the Father's will. And what's frightening here is the word that is translated as unbelief 
in the ESV is the word apostia. Apostia is the word for faithful or believing. You put an A in front of it in Greek and it negates it. It's the negative form, apostia. And this word is used by Matthew only of those who do not believe and refuse to believe. There's a difference between apostia and not believing and a word that is also translated as those of little faith. These are people without faith at all. They don't believe that Jesus is a man of God, that he can work miracles. They're scandalized by Jesus. They're astonished at him. They're offended by him. So the people of Nazareth didn't recognize Jesus. Jesus didn't have the right pedigree. He didn't have the right background. He didn't have the right credentials. So they didn't recognize him or listen. And the tragedy is, especially in the context of Matthew 13, is here was the pearl of great value right in front of them. And they rejected him. They refused to believe in him. They wouldn't accept his authority. They wouldn't believe his teachings. I hope that's not true of any of us this morning within the sound of my voice. That you see the beauty of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, who is the only way that we can get to the Father, the only source of eternal life, the pearl of great value, and we decide there's other things that we're going to give our lives to. Not much has changed, has it? Over time, human history, today there are many who refuse to believe in Jesus. They don't want to be confronted over their sin. They're not willing to embrace the biblical worldview that Jesus brings. And we're reminded, we're haunted by the sin of the people of Israel during the time of Judges. Each one does what's right in his own eyes. And if ever there was a statement that describes our days, it is that one. Each one does what is right in his own eyes. And if Jesus still beckons people to come, repent, believe, come and receive. In the chapters to come, opposition to Jesus will get more and more vocal, more and more heated, and Jesus will not flinch. He knows who he is, from where he has come, whose he is, and what he came to do. And we're so glad that's true. And he walked that path for you and for me. He endured the cross for you and for me. Do you have that same resolve to follow him? Will you be like that soldier we heard about in the opening story? The greatest thing that's ever happened to me is I've become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll gladly and willingly and boldly share that with people around you. Do you believe that Jesus will keep his word and accomplish his will? There's opposition in the land to Jesus and his ways. There was then, there will be now. It comes from many sources. It may even come from family and those closest to you. So the call goes out to us like it did to those first disciples. Stand firm in the truth of God for he holds you fast and he keeps you. Oh, I look forward to the day when all of us gather safely on the shores of heaven and we look back and say, God has kept us 
God has preserved us. But until that day, he says, stand firm, my friends, even in the face of opposition, because he's worth it. We look, we've seen a rejection story today, rejection of Jesus. We're going to see another rejection story next week, chapter 14, the rejection of John the Baptist. So the rejection of both the Lord and his forerunner, rejected by the people to whom they were to announce the kingdom of heaven. It will set the tone for what's coming in the rest of the gospel according to Matthew. But as we await that passage, what are some lessons we can take away from today? Because Jesus gives the wisdom of God, we will let his wisdom guide our lives and decisions. Make it a daily prayer. Father, guide me in your wisdom. Give me your wisdom. Help me to understand your word that I will live wisely. Secondly, because Jesus is worth it, we will not be ashamed of him, even before our family, friends, and neighbors. The ultimate family is the family of God, a family that will never fail. Thirdly, because Jesus is to be honored above all, we pray for strength to honor him in our words and thoughts and actions, that we would praise him, worship him, be amazed by him, tell others about him, and may it never be said of us, that somehow we're astonished or embarrassed or even offended. And lastly, because Jesus can do anything, we will not hesitate to go to him in faith with our needs and prayer requests. He can do mighty works. He wants to do mighty works. He will do mighty works. He says, come to me and ask me, and I will work my will through your life. Let us pray. Father, in these moments as we recognize what you are telling us through your word, we also recognize that ultimately this can only happen because of Christ. And so this morning, Father, we who have repented and believed, we thank you that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, hidden with him, and therefore the wrath of, of sin has passed over us. But Father, now that that has happened, you call us to live out a holy life, to live out what we have received. And so give us the strength to do that joyfully, willingly, hopefully, so that you'll receive glory in our lives. Father, this morning there may be those that have been holding back. And I pray that you would speak to them this morning and say, let go, let good and kindred go this mortal life also and turn to the one who gives eternal life who gives abundant life who is life even our Lord Jesus Christ Father we want to honor you this week so even as you go before us thank you that you will also walk with us and strengthen us to please you and to proclaim you and find pleasure in you as we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' holy name, amen. I invite you to stand as we...